The Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. During adolescence, young people are exposed to a range of risks beyond their family homes, including sexual and criminal exploitation, peer-on-peer abuse and gang-related violence. But it's only been recently that the safeguarding implications of these harms have started to be recognised. Social care organisations are increasingly looking at new approaches, but continue to experience challenges in supporting affected young people and their families. My name is Jess Miles, and today I'm speaking to Carleen Furman, Professor of Social Work at Durham University, and one of the authors of Safeguarding Young People Beyond the Family Home, published by Policy Press and available to read free via open access. Based on evidence assessment of social care organisations' responses to risks and harms outside the home across 10 countries, the book gives insights into how these risks and harms can be understood and highlights key areas for service development. Welcome, Carleen. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a care pleasure. It's a fantastic book and a really important book as well. Um, So you start and finish the book with the case of Child Q. So in June this year, policy officers were served with gross misconduct notices after a black girl was strip searched while at school, while she was menstruating and without another adult present. How does this frame the arguments you're making in the book? There's two key reasons why we chose to start and close the book with reference to the child Q case and particularly her voice. Um, in that respect. And the first is that the book is focused on the risks that young people face outside of their family homes and one of the contexts in which they sometimes come to harm from peers or by adults who access the school environment or as in the case of child Q by professionals is the school context. So we thought it was a, a helpful and powerful example of the fact that outside of the family home young people can and do experience significant harm. The other reason why we selected it though was because increasingly our review, uh, the literature in our review increasingly um, suggested that we're not only thinking about the harms caused by other adults or peers, but the harms our systems may cause in how we respond to young people affected by these issues, particularly young people who we see to be criminal or offender first and victim second. And in the case of Child Q, um, her potential involvement in offending, it being in possession of drugs, was the primary focus of the professionals involved and not the safeguarding implications of that, despite the fact that no drugs were found on her, the initial response was to seek support from a criminal justice agency rather than from children's social care, the local authority, and to see this as a safeguarding issue. And that's a key tension that runs through the book, is how do we shift our systems to respond to young people in a way that puts their welfare first and sees them as children in need of support first, um, rather than those in need of criminalisation. So what's your background and how did you come to write this book? Um, So I've researched young people's experiences of harm in public, school and peer contexts for 
about 15 years now um, in voluntary sector organisations and government departments and then in academic settings at the University of Bedfordshire and more recently at Durham University and um, since my doctorate my work has focused on developing the idea of contextual safeguarding which is mm -hmm. a concept that's being used in the UK and in other international settings to think about how we create uh, social work responses um, to context beyond the family home where young people are at risk of significant harm. So I was particularly interested in being involved in this book and being involved in the project um, that it comes from, which is the Innovate Project, uh, which right. is run by Sussex University in partnership with Durham University um, Research and Practice and the Innovation Unit, where we're looking at social care responses to extra familial risks and harms, um, looking at contextual safeguarding being one of those innovations, trauma-informed practice and transitional safeguarding being the other two innovations that we're studying for that project. And in the first year of that project, started in 2019, we conducted an evidence review to try to understand how social care organisations were currently responding to these issues before we started studying the innovations that are being used in the UK to do that. So the book is kind of bringing all those strands together? It is, yeah. Right. So I gave a few examples in the introduction, but can you talk us through your definition of extra familial risks and harms and kind of explain the importance or the implications of the way in which we classify them? Sure. So there's a few things to uh, think about, which we had to grapple with when we were undertaking the review and thinking about the classification. Uh, this term really groups together a range of interpersonal harms that impact uh, the welfare of young people, can pose a risk of significant harm to young people, but the interpersonal nature of that relationship is not parent or caregiver child, which is what we would traditionally see in terms of a social work response to children at risk of significant harm, would be the state intervening where the parent or carer causes harm to the young person or poses a risk of harm to the young person. Yeah. Extra familial harm is as it suggest so you're talking about still interpersonal harms but this the person that's harming the young person is not their parent or caregiver but the other reason why we group these harms together particularly in a UK context is really about the system that responds to these harms rather than the harms themselves because they're various you're talking about young people being sexually exploited criminally exploited to transport drugs sexually abused by peers in school and um, experiences of severe and fatal violence using weapons between young people in public spaces abuse in their own intimate and romantic relationships that they mm. might start to have in adolescence so a range of harms are all to an extent qualitatively different but grouped together because we're seeing in the UK and a desire to respond to these harms as child protection issues, as issues that pose a risk of significant harm to children, but using a system that was designed to respond to harms within families. So it's really a systems definition that's saying, okay, we want to respond to these harms, but these harms are different to the harms traditionally thought of as the focus of the system that's being used. Um, and this is one of the reasons why the system is struggling, because the system traditionally would focus on um, changing the action of parent or carer to create safety for the child. And in these harms, we need to create safety in the extra familial context where the harm is happening. But we also need to work directly with the young person, not necessarily just their parent or carer, to create safety and and that's where we start to see this tension between this young pe person being viewed as an offender for example rather than as a child in need of of support 
So that's why we group them. It's um, like many definitions, it's constructed and you could define these harms in lots of different ways. But we're particularly interested to think about how social care systems respond to them as a collective group of harms. Right. Um, type of harm that was not necessarily in mind when um, child protection systems were being designed in the UK. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I have a couple of questions off the back of that. So presumably extra familial risks and harms have always existed in some form or another. So why do you think it is that the um, that the system was set up with that sole really focus on the family? It's interesting you ask that question because I think, and, and it's an interesting question to ask internationally because when we look at various child protection systems in particular, um, around the world, particularly in kind of North America, Australia, and a number of European countries, you look at the legislative basis for intervening in family life, intervening with children, it has to be because the parent or carer um, is at fault often. That's the kind, because we have to have a threshold. This is private life. A lot of the times we have a threshold for intervening. And in the UK, um, in 1989, we had the Introduction of the Children Act, which is still the kind of fundamental legislation for the system we have today. And one of the authors of that legislation, Baroness Hale, gave a speech on its 30th anniversary, in which she clearly described the desire at that time to group together different pieces of legislation, um, but also to create some clear water between the system that responds when a parent um, is at fault and mm. a child is at risk of harm because of that, and a system to respond when a child is at risk of harm because of the actions they take. Um, and that, at the time, was meant to be the youth justice system. Right. So there was an intentional separation of these two systems at that point, where okay. these harms, something like sexual exploitation, would have been around at the time, but would have been thought of as the child being deviant, kind of acting against the advice of parents, carers and professionals, and their behaviour being in need of attention. And that would have been managed through a youth justice system. And there were moves at the time to also create a more restorative, focused youth justice system. And then you have your child protection system and the wider system in which that sits in terms of children's social care, which is focused on children who are at risk because of what's happening within their families. What we've seen since then is a shifting narrative at different points towards these harms, initially sexual exploitation, where there was a recognition that this wasn't about children making poor choices, but this was about children being abused, sometimes being groomed into making those decisions or being in very coercive or constrained environments, either because of violence or because of poverty or homelessness, which meant that they were being exploited, that they weren't prostituting themselves. And this kind of shift in how we view something like sexual exploitation, which we're also seeing in places like the US, um, means that you then, this framing that you need a system about deviant children doesn't work because these children then are much more framed as children in need of protection. Um, and then they don't fit. They don't fit in either place. They don't fit in a youth justice system because we're not sanctioning them anymore. We recognize they're being abused, but they also don't fit in a child protection system that assumes uh, you intervene when children are being abused because of parent or carer and and over, as we saw that shift with exploit sexual exploitation we latterly saw that shift with other things like criminal exploitation uh, serious youth violence sometimes um, question marks over young people's experiences of radicalization but generally an acceptance that all of these things pose a risk of significant harm to children mm. and if we remove the idea that young people are the cause of that 
then we have a question mark about kind of what is the system then that holds holds the response and attention around that and ongoing tension around whether we see them as people who have been victimized people who are perpetrating harm sometimes both um, that is where the tensions lie and then that creates the gap where you need a different kind of system to manage it definitely Just, creates a gap yeah yeah so thinking about this kind of shift away from criminalization and the idea of the young person as the offender um, that clearly is happening, but I should imagine that there's also there's an inequality here as well, and I it's not happening in the same way for all groups, is it? Absolutely, and we note that in the book, and there's been some research into this, although it's still uh, kind of woefully inadequate, um, so we know that um, services are less likely to see young men as victims um, than they are to see young women and this is racialized so uh, black young people um, being kind of viewed as criminal aggressive and so on and so forth over and above vulnerable and also an under recognition of young people with learning needs for example um, so a range of inequalities may mean that um, some are viewed as victims over and above others and there are questions um, although this isn't necessarily discussed in detail in the book but questions about when we saw uh, particularly in the UK context an increased concern about protective responses to young people affected by extrafamilial harm it was when there was a lot of media attention on the exploitation of white young women by um, men of largely South Asian heritage and so there was a racialized dynamic to the public concern at that time and I think we'd be right to ask questions of whether we would have seen that if those instigating that harm had been white or if those that have been abused had been racially minoritized so from the outset we've seen concern come and go depending on um, um, how we identify the young people who have been affected and there's an overarching narrative that these are forms of harm um, and therefore those who are um, experiencing it are being victimized. But the practicality of being able to respond in that way is still very difficult. Mm. Um, so we've, there's a, an easier, it's easier in some respects to do it for sexual exploitation because once you remove the idea that a child can prostitute themselves, they're not committing an offense when they're being sexually exploited. Yeah, there's no um, question there then, is yeah. that, yeah. Whereas yeah. when they're being criminally exploited, they may still be carrying drugs, they may still be carrying weapons, they may still be distributing drugs. All of those things are still criminal offences. And so um, we have got some in legislation that was introduced around a defence that you can call upon in terms of modern slavery, but it's used um, infrequently and there are still huge questions about um, these types of offences because they are still offences. Yeah, prostitution is not an offence. So the, the kind of um, trajectory we've seen for some of these harms, we haven't seen for them all, sometimes because of the identity of the children who were impacted and sometimes because of the nature of the offending that's involved um, in, in the harm itself. Yeah, that's really interesting when you talk about it in that way. And it shows the importance of the structure around what's yeah. actually happening. Um, so moving on a bit more to the detail of the book. Um, I think the main section of the book focuses on the specific changes needed to be made to practice the practice of social work to manage this extrafamilial risk and harm. And you cover things like relationship building, collaboration, building resilience in young people, addressing the dynamics of risk, um, and like we've talked about, avoiding blaming and labeling approaches. So, please, can you talk? It's, it's a big 
big question, but can you talk us through what needs to change? And also it'd be interesting to know of any steps that have been made so far. Sure. So uh, there were a few um, things that I thought were particularly interesting when undertaking the review. Um, as you mentioned, we identified five kind of areas of practice that um, appeared promising thematically in the evidence that was reviewed. And some are kind of unsurprising, but what the review helped us to do was to deepen our understanding of each of those um, ways of approaching this issue. So one was um, to um, take a relationship-based approach to supporting young people affected by these issues, particularly relationships of trust, but also the role of relationships between professionals and families, and the role of relationships between professionals and wider communities, and how those relationships support and protect young people. Then there was the point on collaboration, so the importance of multi-agency working. What I would say about this is it largely came from UK literature, particularly inquiries that focus on the need for agencies to work better together, although there was some international literature that talked about a lack of um, a shared understanding around some of these harms, particularly between social care and the police. Um, and the shifting nature of different organisational roles once we recognise this as abuse and not as a crime that young people perpetrate, what's the role of those different agencies mm. and how do we come to a shared understanding of what's happening and what, and what needs to happen in terms of a response. The third area was the need to respond to the contexts associated to these harms and the structural drivers of what happens in those contexts. And, and what was really interesting for me in that particular chapter is the a wealth of evidence on in contextual interventions, so particularly coming from uh, North America, but also other countries, interventions that have been trialled in schools, in peer groups, and to a lesser extent in public spaces to reduce the extent to which those contexts are conducive with things like peer-to-peer -peer abuse and to build safer environments for young people. Yes, in your TED we, talk, you talk about space, don't you? And like the stairwell and that, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, so we see that in the interventions literature. What we didn't see in the review was systems that held those interventions yeah. consistently. So there was evidence that it helps to be able to intervene with peer relationships or places and spaces. But what we didn't have was, and this is the evidence of how you do that with in a social care system. Yeah. The um, fourth element was to respond to the specific nature of extrafamilial harm, and that particularly was around the victim-offender overlap and the need to be able to um, engage with the idea that young people may gain materially or otherwise from their experiences of mm. abuse and a need to hold that and hold their need for protection and think about how we meet their needs differently. And the fifth element was the need to be youth informed. So a really design services that had adolescents in mind kind of wanted to work with the dynamics of adolescents rather than fight against them. So we know this is a time in our life where young people want to make decisions for themselves, want to kind of utilize their own agency. So trying to be more collaborative in our approach and trauma-informed in terms of recognising how trauma might be impacting young people's decision-making and behaviour was really critical for youth-informed services. And we were also alive to the fact that some of the literature talked about young people aged 18 to 25, not mm -hmm. just those under 18, and the need for transitional support that didn't stop at a young person's 18th birthday. So they were the five areas, relationship-focused, um, 
multi-agency working, um, context-focused, um, dealing with the dynamic spectrum of familial harm and being youth-informed. What we found through uh, pulling those five areas together, each was evidenced in and of itself in the literature, but the framework we go on to um, present in the book really talks about the need for these to all intersect with each other, that yeah. really just saying okay what we're going to do is we're going to respond to this issue by being really relational or we're going to respond to this issue by focusing on context you would miss other elements of what you needed in the response that these weren't necessarily separate although they were often talked about in that way um yeah. in the literature but actually the strength potentially came in how you would pull them all together and what they collectively told us about the limitations and also the opportunities of social care responses to these issues yeah, that's a great um, that's a great summary. Thank you very much. I did want to ask about we're talking about um, the extra familial risk and harm, kind of as a separate thing from the usual way we look about protecting children. But how can social workers and other people involved balance the management of risks within the home with risks outside the home? Because presumably, in many or most cases, there are both. It's a really important question um, and I've definitely had been asked this increasingly as people start to think about extra familial harm they panic that will stop thinking about yeah. uh, the harm that young people experience from the family. There's a few things to say I think we don't know how many young people impacted by these issues are also impacted by harm within the family and we don't know that because often the young people that come to it our attention are coming to our attention because we already know about their families. Um, okay. So yeah. outside of the study, like in, in one project I was working on, um, a local authority said to us, no, every single child we assess for extra familial harm has got an, a related issue within the family. And then when they looked at what was happening at the entry point into their services, they realised that if there wasn't an issue within the family, even if those children have been stabbed, they've been found in possession of drugs, they disclosed sexual abuse from peers, they were closed to children's social care because right. parents were doing all they could to protect. Yeah. So the social care figures then implied that in every case there would be a familial issue, yes. but yeah. they were sifting out the other cases. So yeah. it, it, it's um, likely that a significant proportion of them would be because challenges within the family home can create a push factor out of the family home and create other associated vulnerabilities to these issues. But it is possible, as we have seen cases where young people come to harm outside the family home, despite there being no or very minimal challenges within the family home. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we can't hold both when we need to. And I think it's really, and that's why the systems definition of this is really important because we're exploring extra familial harm because the system was never designed to work with it. The system was designed to work with familial harm. Now, some people might say that it doesn't do it very well, and that's a legitimate criticism, but this um, focus is because the system was never designed to consider these things. Mm. So the question is, if you do have children who are in in um, having receiving a child protection response or a wider social care response because of challenges that their family is facing and those children also experience extra familial harm, the question is, how do you draw the extra familial harm issues into the service that you already offer? Yes. To young people? Because we already have that system. And what we're not trying to do is to recreate the entire child protection system, the entire social work system for all young people we have a system it doesn't always work very well but we have one and um, we don't have a system in terms of extra familial harm and that's 
why there's this focus on the book, but it would be about pulling those things in. And I think it's a really important question because unfortunately, when I would review cases, if there was an issue within the family home, say there was domestic abuse, the moment that that was identified, the plan to support that child was then all about the domestic abuse. Um, And there was nothing to then address the extra familial issues that were also important. So this is what you do in addition to what you already do to support children and families, not instead of what you might already be doing to support children. That that must be beneficial to people working with young people because you're getting the holistic view of their lives as well then, aren't you? Because it it is all intertwined. One Um, would hope so. And I think and also help to bring families um, and young people on board because it's a more realistic account of what they're experiencing. Whereas if with whatever happens to a young person, we come back and say, oh, that's because the parents aren't setting boundaries or that's because the parent has a mental health issue. Well, a young person's not being sexually exploited because their parent has a mental health issue. They're being sexually exploited because someone's sexually exploiting them yeah. and was able to access them at, I don't know, a takeaway shop in the after school window. Yeah. That's why they're being sexually exploited. Their parent could have a mental health issue and then not be sexually exploited. There's no causal relationship there. So um, that can just be experienced as very blaming to that parent, doesn't bring them on board, doesn't help us see how we can support the parent to support their child, but also how we address the fact that someone not connected to that parent has targeted their child and targeted them in a place that that parent has no control over and a place that should be safe. So yeah. we have to do all those things if we want to create safety for the young person. But also, um, if we want to be able to meaningfully engage with them, when we don't, what we see is what we saw in the book, which is the use of out of home care for these young people. And that's not just in yeah. the UK, in other countries where we move the child out of the family home a significant distance from the area that they've been harmed in, but then a significant distance from their family, from their friends. And arguably, if they weren't experiencing this harm, the challenges the family facing wouldn't be enough for a care order. So. Right you're taking them out of a family that even if they have challenges aren't so unsafe that the child needs to be in care but Mm. because they're now experiencing criminal exploitation they've been removed from their family and moved a significant distance from the family home which must increase risk the likelihood of risk a number of local areas would say um you know young people go missing from those placements and we do see that in the literature yeah yeah. Will go missing from placements, run back to family, run back to peers, but also it removes them from their support network, the professionals that they have relationships with. And um, so it's not that we'd never do it, but the reliance on it is because we struggle to create safety around that child. Whereas if we had a system that was capable of engaging with those dynamics of extra familial harm, targeting those contexts, prioritizing relationships with the for the young person including the relationship they have with their family mm. the relationship sustained relationship with professionals collaborated with them on on it to create a safety plan that everyone agreed on we might be able to keep them where they are and build safety around them rather than a costly intervention of moving them away and moving them away from where they're safe as well as where they're at risk yeah. that's where we see all the um, elements of the um, review come to life because all of the themes that we identified would need to be in place for that type of response to be possible yeah that make that makes sense now it's about connecting things up and um 
yeah, changing that structure around them, isn't it? So, yeah. I mean, we're talking about transformational change here. So what needs to happen like in the short term within social work and other areas to allow us to offer this kind of safeguarding for young people experiencing risk beyond the family? I suppose I'm asking, what would you like to see happen next? Um, well, I'd like, we'd love to obviously see some engagement with the book and the ideas within it and to invite people to think about whether or not their team, their organisation or even their individual practice aligns to the framework that we present. So we use the five themes that we've identified to ask questions in the um, penultimate chapter of the book about whether a response is aligned to the evidence base. And I do think it would help teams and organisations who are engaging with this work to ask themselves that. Well, they might find that they're very aligned with multi-agency working, but less aligned with being youth informed and maybe start to think about that in terms of taking an next step of thinking about what to prioritise. We also mm. would invite policymakers to consider the extent to which they're creating conditions in which that type of approach is feasible. And um, as you said, this is transformational. It's not a kind of what we're not recommending are tweaks. We're recommending a shift in how we view um, the role of social care um, in responding to these issues. And so we do need a policy context that remove some of these challenges around things like um, an, a, a, an overlap between how we whether we view young people as offenders or we view them as young people in need of support. Yeah. Changing policy doesn't necessarily change practice because there are still huge practical and cultural tensions around the work, but it's quite clear that our policy frameworks are not quite aligned to what we find in the book, and um, neither are our commissioning frameworks um, for services. So, um, you know, short-term commissioning of interventions that solely provide one-to-one -one support wouldn't meet all of the mm -hmm. themes identified. Um, yeah. So yeah, it would be there's there's definitely takeaways in there for policymakers and um, commissioners, but also um, teams involved in the day to day practice. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's excellent summary of the book and some kind of practical steps that people can take forward. So that's really helpful. Um, safeguarding young people beyond the family home, responding to extra familial risks and harms, is published by Policy Press. Um, it's available open access, which means you can download it free from our website and other platforms. Find out more on our website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.